0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, March 1st, 2023, and today we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. And as we do each week on the Roundup, we take our questions that we answer today from the news articles we've been uh, collecting and collating and digesting over the last few days that we post on Mondays in our newsletter format called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And that comes out Monday, either uh, direct to your inbox uh, through email, and you can subscribe to that free of charge at our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe, dropping the links to that site, as well as this week's most recent edition of the email newsletter version. And if you prefer to get your international ed news via LinkedIn, uh, we have a LinkedIn version of that as well. And we're fortunate enough that over the last uh, last month or so, we've crossed the 1,000 subscribers uh, threshold for the newsletter. I'm very proud to be uh, one of the few international ed news and social media ed news specific outlets that uh, so many of you have uh, taken to heart and make a regular part of your uh, weekly international edification. So thanks so much for making use of the newsletter, and for subscribing to that, and then making part of the Midweek Roundup uh, as part of your uh, journey each week as well. Uh, For those listening either live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter, uh, we also have an audio-only version of this podcast, uh, of this uh, Midweek Roundup that you can download from your favorite podcast providers, free of charge, again, to all who uh, would like that international edification in their ears while they walk, work out, or do their jobs each day. Thanks again for being a part of this journey with SMIE Consulting. So our three questions today are going to start with uh, a topic near and dear to our heart at SMIE uh, because SMIE stands for Social Media and International Ed. Consulting, and what we do, um, and what when we have stories that overlap between international education and social media, that kind of makes our hearts full. And in terms of what we'll talk about first, is a is a is this question of what is the future of international student recruitment via social media. We've seen a lot, obviously, that happened during the pandemic that forced uh, everybody to commit everything online because they weren't able to do physical travel anymore. Uh, That relied on social media uh, outlets to get messages across for live events, for Instagram takeovers, for virtual fairs and all of that. Uh, But specifically about social media, how has that uh, we've seen the rise of social media, obviously, over the last 15, uh, 18 years now, uh, that the major platforms have been uh, second nature for, for our student markets around the world. Uh, those platforms that they focus on change from year to year and country to country, as we know, and that requires a level of sophistication if you're going to be uh, targeting a, a Students in particular markets with messaging to make sure that your voice is being heard on the right platforms So that's all the background context to kind of what's led up to this point in time With regards to social media And international student recruitment So what we've found and this article uh, is from our friends at Inted uh very good, uh, reliable data source for and consulting uh, f- that really digs deep into your uh, institutional messaging, into your target markets, into uh, where you need to have a presence. And I really applaud them for all their work. Uh, but the article is uh, kind of a summary point of all of their uh, recent um, pieces they do on v- different platforms, whether it's TikTok for marketing internet marketing, whether it's Snapchat, Instagram, uh, building an audience and. In- General, if you're new to new to international ed or new to social media overseas, uh, text messaging, email, A/B testing, chatbots, all of that. They've got some great guides that they put together over the year, over the last few uh, months that uh, are kind of one-on-one stuff that uh, I would I would recommend for anyone who's uh, even even those that have been doing it a while. It's good to have some refreshers and some fresh eyes on uh, what uh, is actually happening out in the marketplace. So some great resources that Inted provides that will help. I think um, give you insight into what different platforms are, how wh- what the messaging needs to be, the timing and the format of those messaging uh, messages that you want to get out on particular platforms. They've got some great content uh, that you can get links to uh, from this article. So uh, definitely recommend that and make that uh, a read if you have passed it along to folks who are doing any international social media for you so that they're aware of uh, kind of the Kind of best practices, frankly, in the game uh, that uh, when it comes to international uh, social media. Uh, so that's uh, in terms of the future of it. Uh, the other side of the coin is what we've been seeing as of late regarding platforms like TikTok and WeChat. Uh, we were have just been told in the state of Nevada. Our NSHE, uh, National uh, Nevada State Higher Education Board, has passed their communications committee, has passed down uh, regulations that if uh, that TikTok, WeChat, and Grammarly, of all all things, should be removed from uh, university devices and not be used. And the, they did give a caveat that unless uh, their use is mission critical uh, to uh to whatever use they're they're being used for, in terms of driving student uh, university-focused mission statements. So uh, this is not, <clears throat> excuse me, this is not as broad a ban as we've seen in. It's not an outright ban, even, but it's saying it should be dis, uh, should not be used. Uh, WeChat. LinkedIn, or excuse me, WeChat, uh, TikTok, and Grammarly, uh, for security reasons. Uh, again, a lot of a lot of data privacy concerns that we've seen in the conversations related to TikTok, also impacting WeChat and apparently Grammarly as well. Uh, in Grammarly's case, I'm not sure where those security deficiencies lie and who owns that product because, obviously, with TikTok and WeChat, those are Chinese products, uh, Chinese-owned products, and the parent companies are, are responsible to the Chinese government uh, and have to provide data to them uh, when it's asked, uh, without question. It's just part of the nature of the beast over there. But uh, these kinds of government uh in stepping in, whether at the state level or the federal level, uh, we've seen some stories that we're going to be reporting on this coming week uh, that uh, we, we've also had Canada, this uh, is has also decided to, uh, excuse me, is it Canada? Yeah. Uh, that Canada, or excuse me, European Commission has banned TikTok from official devices. Uh, that's also uh, a story I'll be sharing with you. And you will will see a story next week that uh, Canada, has uh, – government officials, have banned t- the use of TikTok for similar security concerns. Now, uh, we know this is; these are to do with uh, with relationships with China, and data sharing, uh, and what information gets onto TikTok. Uh, is that is shared with the Chinese Communist Party? Those that's the driving force. And now on, apparently on a bipartisan level, with regard to congressional action in the United States, we may soon be seeing TikTok ban bills. Uh, floated and potentially passed. What will that? What impact will that have? We already know that within Congress, there's bans uh, on TikTok on U- on U.S. government devices. Uh, f- applies to the federal government as well. So fe- several states have implemented these TikTok bans again for security concerns. So they can't all be wrong, I don't think. So there's some something there, uh, and that uh, there are certain platforms that you may not be able to use potentially to reach intended international student markets. And if that, uh, we're maybe in a little bit more fortunate position right now in Nevada that it hasn't been outright banned, that if it's still mission critical to uh, our, our mission as a university to and for various reasons. One of our mission pieces is growing our international population, and China is an important part of that. Uh, we're looking into ways to do that, use social media more effectively to reach China and other countries around Asia that are, are huge drivers of students to the United States. Uh, we need to have content, obviously, to, f- to fill those platforms, translated content as well. So there's a whole uh, network of things we need, we're needing to do to get it set up. But to be honest with you, TikTok has been used the, by the University, uh, we there's an official UNLV TikTok team as well as a, a an undergraduate admissions TikTok team, so they've been in operation for over a year now, and I've uh, been getting some good traction with their with their content that they've been putting out. But uh, is that mission critical to reaching students in the U.S.? Yes, if you might you might say. Good for that 100 million people in the United States are on TikTok, and good percentage of those are in the college age demographic. So that might we might be okay, but that's not the case in other states where it's an outright ban on any university device cannot be used. Uh, these these social channels like TikTok cannot be used. WeChat is a bigger one because th- that had been floated a couple years ago, particularly during the Trump administration. Uh, there was threats of a TikTok and WeChat ban for similar reasons over data security, and uh, that that WeChat talk kind of died away, but it's it's coming back and it's affecting us in Nevada now. But WeChat is it is the platform where everything happens in China. It is kind of like Facebook on steroids with uh, with PayPal and uh, Instagram and uh, YouTube and (laughs) uh, rolled into one, and LinkedIn all rolled into one. So there's some uh, real challenges on being able to reach students in China without access to their social media uh, ecosystem, and uh, WeChat would be the number one way to do that. So uh, we may still have options to do that. we're not sure I haven't, we haven't really crossed that bridge yet we're still months out from making that decision. But for those that are already invested in WeChat and in, in TikTok and in really cr- using that as a tool to recruit uh, students in China, obviously it's a different called something different in China but a uh, similar similar philosophy there same parent company, what are you going to do? Uh, is that something you'll still be able to rely on? And uh, what it boils down to is social media, well, there will be, always be social media around a versions of it, uh, the, where the students are might change from year to year, or decade to decade, or country to country, but uh, still, there will still be ways to reach students using these tools, uh, even though one platform might get banned. Uh, for example, TikTok and a lot of over 150 Ch- uh, Chinese applications, apps in the App Store have been banned in India for years. Uh, so it's not unusual to, for these things to happen in other countries. Uh, of course, VPNs can get you around that to be able to access. Uh, that's where a country completely bans access to a, to a particular app. Um, maybe VPNs will get you around that in India. I don't know, but certainly VPNs can get you into U- our, our 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 social media networks if you're in China, if you have a uh, get over the Great Firewall. But uh, there's 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 some real challenges coming forward. Um, but I, I think. In uh, politics, uh, does tend to rear its head in in terms of recruitment when it comes to technology, and we've seen uh, as as we have um, with regards to China and uh, the China Initiative during the Trump uh, Trump years. Uh, even though that's no longer in place, there's still uh, still concerns over technology transfer and uh, intellectual property theft uh, going to China from the U.S. and uh, there are. Uh, Karen Fisher from The Chronicle, her uh, Latitude newsletter this week highlighted uh, Chinese-American professors still getting hassled at the border uh, for their ties, uh, their, their research ties and what they were doing in China and that type of thing. So there's a, it's a highly politicized topic and technology and uh, social media as part of that, uh, that, that world now uh, that uh, there are threats to particular platforms continuing to be used by U.S. institutions to reach students overseas, so having a flexible uh, strategy that allows you to repurpose efforts from uh, one social social channel to another, or to focus more on um, on IMing or uh, text messaging to to student groups through other messaging tools that might be available in country, uh, you you need to have flexibility, and that mean that will mean adapting your messaging because it's the uh, same. Same format does not work across all social platforms, and certainly not all messaging platforms. So, how you respond to that is is, is you need to be fairly nimble uh, and have uh, kind of in case of in case of uh, in case of uh, case of pro, uh, band, app bans, do this. Uh, in case of an uh, ability to access certain student markets with certain platforms, do this. So there's uh, there's a need for flexibility in social, uh, no matter what you do anyway, just because of the highly uh, changeable nature and fickle nature. And uh, there's a still a fair bit of experimentation that needs to happen uh, to really dial in your your strategy to get those kind of posts and content that's going to resonate most with your intended audience. So it, I think moving forward it's uh, it's it's keeping the right mindset on, from the outset in terms of what you're able to do and how flexible you can be uh, to allow your uh, strategy to really reach its full potential uh, and a flexible one is, is certainly going to be one that will enjoy more success in the long term so that's uh, that's what we got for question number one question number two a topic we talk about um uh, Every so often here on the Roundup because, uh, frankly, it's, it's it's one that has gone ignored for far too long and I think is really the missing link in tying a successful university experience to a successful alumni experience. And that has everything to do with career services. And the question is, does your career services office meet international students' needs? And this is a, can be a very delicate subject on many college campuses. If you have significant volume of international students over the years, likely this is something that you've had to address uh, from your ISSS office, uh, student life offices that uh, deal with these kind of things, or depending on where it sits in the university structure. Um, at UNLV, its uh, career services sits now within uh, Reorg that we did last year within our academic affairs unit. And that uh, is... Um, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's a positive move for us because um, also under academic affairs is the enrollment, uh, undergraduate admissions as well as um, uh, international student scholar services, uh, those offices that deal most directly with students as they're arriving and once they're on campus. But uh, that career services piece is so critical to the outcomes that you need to be documenting now more than ever and why do you need to document those? Because that's what the parents, that's what the students are asking. Because they're making, when they come commit to send their son or daughter or to commit themselves to come to the United States for study, they're committing tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars of their family's resources to pay for their education at your institution. And that commitment to do that is, um, for, money, for most students, uh, most international students, it, it, they're committing to use sight unseen. They're probably not going to visit until they show up for orientation. They may have had friends that go there. They may have had a chat uh, with uh, with a current student or a recent alumni. Uh, they may have seen videos from current students or alums uh, that are had a conversation with faculty member, but they never they haven't actually been there. So they're trusting everybody that they're associating with in finding out information about your institution, about why they need to come to your institution for or send their son or daughter to you or send them send themselves to your institution, and it's a huge investment. And it's like buying a car on, on an app <laughs> yeah, that happens regularly nowadays, but uh, uh, it's it's the commodification of higher education that is has caused the ability for students and international students. That's that's the way they have to do it uh, unless they have are super wealthy and make all these trips to campuses that they're applying to and are being admitted to so. Uh, the real need to have demonstrable data, and if not data, at least anecdotal stories of successes of graduates from your institution uh, across a range of programs, not just your best program, but across a range of programs that you're trying to get new international students to come to. If you don't have the data or anecdotal stories of how, what students were able to do with your degree in terms of securing jobs, securing careers, going for advanced study, research, whatever it might be. If you don't have that documented, don't have those pathways secured, that is, or da- that, that data secured, those stories secured, uh, that is a huge missed opportunity for your prospective student audiences in terms of stories you could have to share with your incoming students about why. Your institution is going to be the best choice for them, and here's the demonstrable proof. Here are the jobs that our international graduates have gotten in these majors. Here are some of the top uh, alumni uh, who've graduated from our school from overseas, and here's what they're doing now with what they, uh, based on what they studied. Those stories make your job as an admissions, international admissions representative, so much easier when you have that. To tell your story for you, because those are those those students, recent grads, alumni, who have been successful at your institution and have have got the proof of it—have that job, have that position, have that um, those the opportunities that they've had because of where they went to university. That's what you need to tell your story for you. We say our current students are our best advocates. Shortly, right before, right after them, for telling the student experience. Right after that, your best advocates are your alum are your uh, parents of your current students, uh, those types of things, or recent grads, those are the things that you need to have, uh, the pieces of your puzzle, the ar- tools in your arsenal to help tell your story to future students and parents. That outcomes, those outcomes matter now more than ever. Coming out of the pandemic where everybody's more price sensitive, there's still an economic downturn in the world, a global recession happening. What the impact of that means is that people are more price sensitive no matter where they are. Uh, so they're going to be asking the kinds of questions that you might not have the answers to. You might have general university career services data on employability. Six month, Within six months, 90% of our students are employed uh, within, uh, within a year. Seventy-five percent are working in their field to study all of that. Uh, for international students, it's different. They don't have a year; they have two months after they graduate to get into a job through their OPT that they're approved for, and then they have a limited window when they can do that OPT. Uh, I ask I ask this question often when when I, I talk with the university colleagues is um, when it comes to this outcomes question. Do you have those stories from career services, success stories, or from your alumni office that you can bring in? And they go, not really, not on the international side. Do you have any of that international data? No, not really. Guess where you do have some of that data? Your ISSS office. In SEVIS, you you know, (laughs) you have to have documented where your students who are on OPT have gotten jobs. You also do that for cpt you can get lists of where you have to do some data mining it's not very easily accessible nothing in sevis is but you can get lists and find out where your current students on opt are working and from that you can mine some data from that to say uh, match students to majors and what the, what their what their potential employers that they are or employers that they are working for currently. And you can have that and share that with future students and parents. We have, we have 25 students currently working at Tesla. We have, Two students working at at Oracle, we have 10 students working at Google, there's another 15 at Amazon. Uh, if you have that data and those numbers, and you can say these are international students that are currently in that position uh, at those companies, that is gold. That is recruitment gold. And too often universities don't have that, don't have that when it comes to international students. And there's an article, a University New World News article this week, uh, about uh, Chinese students in Australia and having the d- difficulties in, in in the employment market, and getting the best, best, best jobs, and that type of thing. Uh, the link that I'll post now has has a link to it, or excuse me, has uh, to this story. It shares some of the frustrations, and that is, uh, there's a lot in. In terms of expectations in the workplace, and in terms of group work and projects and that type of thing, and how how sometimes. Uh, and Chinese students don't because of d- cultural norms don't do cert- well in certain circumstances so it's about learning those uh, those uh, those expected uh, practices and behaviors in the workplace and there's talk about how to how to explain these cultural differences better to, inter- to international students in this case to Chinese students so there's an article about that there's also uh, from uh, from the Pi News uh, talking uh, looking at Australia and Canada. Uh, where the key to sustainable growth in international student recruitment is, is, as they put it, based on career services investment. So again, talking about some of the things that we're talking about now, that's showing those outcomes and proving that, you're, uh, that you have the services in place to get students ready for the work world, not just preparing them for their job and that they're gonna do based on their academic program, but for the skills that they need to have to do well in the work world in terms of how to interview, how to write a resume, I put together a resume, write a cover letter—all of these things that are, are, are kind of lost arts in a lot of a lot of places. Based on a few uh, searches I've been on in recent years, uh, there's just a lack of um, preparation, really, in a lot of a lot of ways for. Uh, the kind of things that career services can be doing for international students to get them ready for a very different market than what they might be facing back home. And there are services out there that we can and should be tapping or connecting our students with in their home countries, in, in global markets, where they might be looking for jobs outside the U.S., if that's what they choose to do. Uh, and oftentimes, they, if they don't get an immediate job through OPT, they have to start looking elsewhere. So we have to be sensitive to those needs. Uh, but knowing who to turn to and who to refer students to that's that also needs to be a piece of that puzzle uh, the art the university that's profiled in uh, about related to this career services investment piece uh, is University of Hull in in England and they also have um, th- there's an upcoming webinar this our week this week as well maybe I think it was yesterday uh, where uh, they were profiled about how they were able to boost their international numbers in um, uh, i more than double them in, in in the course of three or four years during the pandemic, and it boils down to and from one one of my colleagues who, from that side of the pond, is coming. That it boiled down to a lot of, uh, huge growth from Nigeria and Pakistan, and uh, for some some reason, uh, huge huge numbers increasing from those two countries, uh, when. Uh, and then what that happens, how that affects their their mix at the university. But in in the end, this article I'm just putting the link to in the chat is very much about what uh, what they're doing uh, to to talk about uh, the successes uh, and leveraging that. There's uh, most of you who've been following the new either my, our newsletter for SME SME Consulting or the midweek roundups when we talk about postgraduate work route are. Post-study graduate work visa in England, the two-year work-study visa that they have now. Uh, there are, uh, they there's another article from the PI about some of the success stories that are coming out of that, and that students who are uh, have gone that route, the lion's share are enrolled or, or have jobs uh, in their field, and that's uh, certainly positive. Those uh, see some eight and ten of those employed via the graduate route, according to the PI news, uh, were. Are in graduate level roles, so that's that's what you want. You want them in roles that are appropriate for their for their, their degrees. So that's being be, going to be used as a success story to promote uh, the UK two year post study postgraduate work uh, route. So those are those are some of the things that our our peer countries are doing. Canada, we know. Uh, has uh, expanded uh, work uh, work hours that stu- current international students can do while they're doing their degrees. Uh, and we know that they have huge labor shortages in the market place right now um, due to declining domestic population growth and uh, that the need of these immigrant communities to fill these jobs is so important and their policies are set up to help facilitate that. So uh, there are ways where government can be helping yeah, promote uh, the, 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 the outcomes piece that we're talking about and they so infrequently do, particularly when it comes to the United States. So that's that's the last bit on the career services. There's a lot more to say on that. I'm sure we'll, we won't, this won't be the last time we mention it. Uh, the final piece, uh, the final question is what drives your country's international education efforts? Uh, we long talk about how in the United States our policies, there is no national policy on international education, but in other countries, Canada, the UK, Australia, there's a much more of a working relationship and established national policies or at least bodies that decide national policies that government is bought into international education as, a, as in mo- most of the, these countries as an export strategy. Are exporting their education to the world, uh, and they're doing that in a number of different ways through transnational education, through um, primarily bringing uh, students to their shores to study at their institutions, and then you know, depending on the country, like Australia, like Canada, where there are work sh- labor shortages in certain fields, they're getting extra work permission. International students, when they graduate, are getting extra work permission to stay and work in the in that in in that country. Uh, that uh, is seen as a big driver. We, we mentioned Taiwan a couple weeks ago that their, their new ed, international ed policy in the future is going to be driven to fill, uh, use international students coming for study in certain fields to fill certain job markets uh, job shortages that they're expecting in their la- domestic labor market. Canada's doing the same thing. So... Uh, the driver from the, that's from maybe from a a little bit bigger picture, uh, tends to be those uh, labor meeting economic needs within the country. Uh, One of those economic needs the universities have is, uh, and they often rely on, uh, almost exclusively rely on, is the funding uh, that they bring, international students bring to their institutions. And there's um, a a good article from uh, ISF Monitor about the international agenda for universities remains focused on student recruitment. This was uh, a result of a new Group and uh, our Naus Group uh, and Navitas survey uh, of uh, universities and more than 100 educational leaders, international ed leaders in Australia, Canada, and the UK, finds that internationalization uh, means primarily student recruitment in most countries. Ninety-six percent identify that as the primary driver of their internationalization efforts, Um, and more. Crassly, uh, that uh, they as many mar- many many, pres- uh, many international education cr- uh, commentators will say in certain countries in Australia, UK, Canada, these uh, universities and to a lesser extent in the US, but uh, certainly we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, that we're, international students are seen as cash cows. They're they're driving. The ability for the university to keep its lights on, to fund uh, new programs for uh, research and other other buildings that might go up on campus, all that that's coming from international student revenue. So international student recruitment is your number one driver for internationalization, why you do internationalization, then the likelihood is that driver is primarily motivated by money. Uh, that, what that means for the institution in the U.S. Last week at the AIEA conference, that was very much the concern. Are we too focused on money in the U.S. and wanting to resist what colleagues in Australia, New Zealand, uh, U.K., Canada have done uh, and been um, quite open about why they do what they do? Uh, whereas in the U.S., we tend to think a little bit more in what um, what we would call a, Kind of the high-minded public diplomacy efforts uh, to uh, to increase mutual understanding, like the state the State Department talks about. But we in the U. S. We don't. That's not the only voice. Uh, we have the voice of uh, Department of Commerce, where all they're doing is uh, their main goal is to promote U. S. Businesses, and that means. Uh, using international education, higher education in the U.S. as an export, Uh, sixth-highest export for the country, in terms of value to the country. So they see that very much as a commercial aspect, uh, as a financial Value piece. So, there's a lot more we can say on on this question of what drives your country's international ed efforts. And in the U.S., I can safely say, nothing, no one way in particular drives. Uh, it's really so, as 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 many other things in, in the U.S., we're so decentralized. It's Each institution has its own drill drivers for why they do what they do when it comes to internationalization. So, we'll talk more about that in the weeks and months to come, to be sure. But that's all we have for today now, today on the roundup. And until next week, I wish you the very best. Take care.